You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I will be your co-recording partner, Shane. Let's actually do a quick exercise. Shane, will you please close your eyes? Done. Perfect. All right. Can you feel whether or not I am looking at you? I cannot. Experiment concluded. Great. <laughs> Thank you for participating. <laughs> is there like a, you know, any sort of like payout for that or like what is what was the deal? Like I don't know. I don't remember an informed consent <laughs> component to that. <laughs> Virtual high five. A crisp high five. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah sorry i should have gone through the process that was a bad experiment on my part everybody i did not follow the ethical guidelines appropriately (laughs) to be fair both of us are trained and have certificates in human research so i think we're okay right i I also will out of respect for shane not publish the results of that study (laughs) (laughs) we we do have to store the data for at least five years yes right i will put it before an ethics board to review and determine how i should be punished (laughs) Oh, IRBs. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> no, this is not this is not an episode on IRBs. No. And so let's set a scene really quick. If you are watching a scary movie or a horror movie of some style, and most of you probably are. Just kidding, I know a lot of people don't like them, but the character in the movie, the hair on the back of their neck stands up as the threat of a monster, an intruder, some kind of surprise or threat creeps up from behind. And then they, they turn around, and how did they know that they were being followed? Mm-hmm. Is M. Night Shyamalan really telling us what's going on here, or do we actually have this sense of detecting when we, we have someone who is watching us behind us, right? Yeah, it's a good question. Okay. <laughs> well, you won't find that out in this episode, but you might learn about how subtle changes in the environment around us and how someone's some onlooker, how their behavior might actually signal to us that they're trying to get our attention or even if they're just staring at us, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, we've all probably had the sensation that somebody's watching us or we get that sensation that we are being watched somewhere or just like kind of uncomfortable feeling. I would imagine that most of us have probably had that experience at one point in time in our lives. And so we're going to try to explore that a little bit and see what the science says about the feeling of being watched, that sense of having eyes on you and just that general sense of like intrusiveness, I guess. Right. And something that has occurred is people have used this idea as supporting evidence for something that's more mystical, like how we have either this shared consciousness or we have this ability to detect things that are maybe a little bit paranormal or supernatural. And it's because we can sense without having the appropriate senses when someone else is staring at us from like across the room or from behind us or something. We just get that sense that we're being watched and they say, how would we have that? If we don't have actual eyes in the back of our head, how can we tell if someone's watching us? There has to be this paranormal explanation. Then let's address this. And so scientists have been casually studying the question of whether we can detect people looking at us for over a hundred years. And part of the, this question that's entailed is, How can we detect if someone is watching us without having to depend on metaphysical or paranormal explanations? And the more appropriate question is, can we actually detect when someone is looking at us? Because if if we can't, then we don't need those explanations, right? Right. Why bother if we can't? And so there's just been, you know, a century of countless studies 
And they have all come to one definitive agreement, which is that contrary to popular belief, as well as many parents' assertions, <laughs> that, that humans do not, in fact, have eyes in the back of their head and cannot sense when they are being watched. At least there are some parameters around that. But from completely behind you, you definitely can't tell. Yeah. Also, if you meet somebody that does have eyes in the back of their head, try not to stare. <laughs> That's a, a great point. Thank you. <laughs> Be kind. Yeah. Because that's a genetic variant <laughs> of the species. And as many of you stalkers out there probably already know, you can watch people for a long time without them having any idea. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> for our stalker fan base. <laughs> <laughs> or if, if you're aspiring us, to be one. No, just yeah. just kidding. Don't stalk people. Yeah. And try not to get into <laughs> voyeurism either. Yeah. You know, nothing without consent. That's the, that's the rule of, of all things. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's why we let off the episode with consent it all comes back <laughs> we've worked it back in synchronicity so what you do have though when we talk about this idea this sense or this feeling of like having eyes in the back of your head is is that we do have some really cool features that have to do with our eyes and our brain that actually give us important information about our environment and so that's what we're going to kind of talk about a little bit is how all these things connect to give us what might be considered the sixth sense you know we have this ability to pick up information and detect information and attention from other species and from other people and detect those small changes in the environment as possibly a survival instinct. You know, I would imagine that we have to have pretty acute senses if we are being chased down by saber toothed tigers and things of that nature. It's a fair point. It is kind of funny thinking about this whole thing of parents claiming to have like the extra sensory perception of when kids are misbehaving and it's funny because I get to work with kids quite a bit and they often will say, how did you know? And I'm like, you lack all perspective right now because like nothing you were doing was even remotely subtle. <laughs> I was like, I know because I'm conscious and I have senses like that's how I know. Right. My daughter got in trouble not too long ago. And I was just like, she's like, how did you find out? And I was like, I know I grew up in this town. Everybody knows who you are because they know who I am. Right. So People tell me stuff, so just know that I know everybody, which is also probably not great for giving somebody anxiety. Like, that probably doesn't help <laughs> at all. And I have to be mindful of that. I was like, I just, you just don't know who people know. And that's kind of how I left it. So, yeah, it's always interesting that when people, like, they're not good observers of their own behavior. How did you know? Behavior's pretty predictable, my friend. Yeah, you were being watched. <laughs> yeah. That's how. <laughs> I, I use my eyes. My front, my front-facing eyeballs, yeah. not my back-facing eyeballs. So, according to Psychology Today, scientists have determined that the existence of this gaze detection system is a thing that humans apparently possess, and they propose that there are single brain cells that are activated when someone is staring right at you, and that these cells do not fire similarly when an observer's sight is diverted or at another angle. So it's only when they're staring right at you. Right. So it's important to kind of recognize why this is important. Now, eye contact is the more frequent and poignant nonverbal signal that we exchange or accompany with our verbal behavior, right? So when we're talking with people, we tend to make eye contact with people. And so it makes sense that we have some biological process to detect when eye contact is occurring. And it is part of a complex facial expression that humans use to convey emotion and communicate information with each other. So if you've ever been in a space where you've communicated just based on eye contact, that kind of gives credence to the idea that we might have some kind of sense to detect these types of things. And what kind of things might this accomplish if we're able to establish eye contact well for one thing it can get someone's attention right and that is a way for us to without using noise 
get someone to orient to what we're doing or what we need from them. But in addition to that, it's also seen in other species. So there's something in here that is potentially useful at a survival level and therefore is commonly observed. So, for example, when a predator stalks its prey and prepares its pounce, it's going to have probably avoiding eye contact, actually. <laughs> but it's going to have its eyes locked on this target. Babies gaze at their parents to capture their attention. And humans and their pets, you'll notice definitely like cats and dogs and maybe rabbits or birds. I don't know. Whatever it is. Like one way that they get our attention is by trying to is by looking at us and then we catch the fact that they're looking at us and then we respond to it. And there is something in there that we may unpack later, but we might also in our pets be accidentally training this behavior by awarding attention when they look at us. So rather than it being that they're looking at us because they have the intention of obtaining our attention, what they have learned is when they look at us, they get things which might include attention. It might include food. There might be you know various reasons that they learn to look at us. Right. I guess you can say there are many mechanisms that go along with this eye contact thing that we're talking about. And I, and I think just generally, even going back to the babies, just as a general way of orienting to this, rather than seeing that there are things that are done with intention. Often they're done because there has been a particular outcome for like, even with babies, like maybe they look to their parent because first they're always looking at the parent because that's where food comes from. But also if they look at their parent then their parent tends to come over to them and provide them with things. And so like looking at this, not with the lens of like, this is just something that they do, but this is something that's very easily learned because it is useful in accomplishing survival tasks. Right. So kind of taking that and unpacking that a little bit, the idea that there's maybe more than one reason that this might happen. You know, the cut.com suggests that gaze reinforces communication between humans and indicates specific things like interest, resources, danger, lust, or complex emotions like love. So it's more than just trying to get somebody's attention. It's actually a form of communicating based on maybe how they look, shape of their eyes, the combination of eye gaze and eyebrows, those different types of cues in the environment that people might attend to can signal different things based on a whole lot of different learning histories and whatnot that you have to account for. Right. And actually, we develop these very specific interpersonal communications with those around us in ways that we start to read what those expressions mean. And that expression might mean different things to different people. So a look that you're used to from someone that you work with might be misinterpreted by someone who's never seen that look before. And with their particular eyebrow position or whatnot, they're like, wow, that person's really upset. Like, no, that's, that's just how they listen. Like, that just means they're paying attention and all. You learn those things with those interpersonal relations and that. So a lot can occur that is significant and important in how those eye gazing and looks develop with experience. You just sometimes when you're around somebody a lot, you just know what a look looks like or what it means. And you can change it like you can kind of your reaction to those facial expressions can change how those reactions show up to an extent. Right. Then the question comes up, how do we know this is happening? How do we know that this process is occurring or how do we know that this sense is occurring within the human organism? So when we start looking at this idea of the human eye and just the sense of sight and the idea of just kind of sensing the environment around us, if we compare the human eye to that of other species, we notice a very obvious difference where the human pupil and its iris occupy a significantly smaller area of the total visible eyeball. So that means that we have more whites in our eyes than many other species that are out there. And this leaves a large white area known as the sclera. That's such a hard word to say. 
Sclera. It's a lot of a lot of consonants right next to each other. Yeah, that's just there's a lot a lot of them that don't really fit together either. Anyway, the sclera acts as a background in which the pupil and iris can shift as the eyeball moves in the socket, creating an obvious indication where the focus is directed. So it kind of gives you a target. It tells you where the source of the eye contact is coming from. And let's just be clear that the iris and the pupil don't actually move. It's the entire eyeball that moves that gives the impression of the iris and pupil moving. So our eyeballs are just sitting there, little stationary balls, or at least everything on them is stationary. And they get the muscles rotate them around so that we can gaze at our environment in a particular way. But yeah, and it just happens to be that the aperture of our eyelids is large enough that you can see a lot of that sclera. Because all animals essentially have a sclera, to the best of my knowledge. I don't think there's any that... Unless they have compound eyes. I don't think there are any that don't have a sclera. It's just that you don't get to see most of it because where their how their eyes are situated, you basically only see the iris and the pupil, which they also generally don't get to move their eyes around, which is often aided by the fact that their eyes are usually placed in such a location that they don't need to move their eyes around because they're on the sides of their head. But then you have organisms like us where our eyeballs are sitting right in the front of our head. That means we really can't see very far to either side. We only see straight forward in one direction. But so as a necessary function, we can move our eyes quite a bit to allow us to see, which means that you get to see a lot of those whites, which means you can see where we're looking. Right. So this happens with visually impaired folks as well. So this is kind of an interesting thing when we start talking about the sense of vision versus kind of the structure of the eyeball. So. In 2013, a case study of a man who was cortically blind, basically when shown pictures of faces that appeared to be looking straight at him as opposed to off to the side, there was an activity spiked in his amygdala. So he, they actually recorded responses in the brain, neurological responses in his brain, as a result of being exposed to these pictures. They saw spikes when pictures of faces were looking at them. And just as a refresher, the amygdala is part of the brain that is associated with well, it's part of the limbic system and is associated with responding to threats and arousal. And it also is associated with playing an important role in emotion and behavior, specifically with fear. Although calling it like the fear center of the brain is way too simplistic for what's actually going on there. <laughs> but this does work in combination with the visual cortex, which is the part of, the, of our brain, obviously, that is primarily associated with and responsible for processing visual information that we obtain from our eyes. But there are also at least 10 other parts of our brain that are involved in this. And of course, as we've mentioned, any one thing that you do involves an enormous amount of cross-coordination with the rest of your body so that you can execute on it, which is also related to a future discussion we have coming up about if you were to sever all of those connections and then try and reconnect them again. But let's, uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and move on in this discussion and stay on topic. Yeah, so I guess this begs the question, have we found it? Have we found this sixth sense of, of being able to sense when we're being stared at. Not quite, okay? Yeah, no, so not yet. No, I, don't, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, we're working on it, though. So basically, what we're saying here with this study is that his eyes still receive data from some type of visual stimuli, despite the disconnect between his eyes and the brain in a traditional way. So that brings us to the question of what is happening when you notice gaze directed your way. Right, so I think I want to come back to our original setup for this, which is if someone's behind you, can you feel them looking at you? Or really, just generally speaking, can you feel when someone's looking at you? And the answer is resoundingly no, except kind of yes. And there's a very specific <laughs> condition under which, yes, you can. And that is that our peripheral vision, which is, if th this is always hard and something I've, I've always struggled with, 
whenever you're looking at anything, the point at which you actually are, your eyes are focused is very small, right? Right. And everything else around that very small point, although you can see it, is actually very blurry. And the further it gets away from your focal point, the blurrier it gets. And if you ever try and broaden your focus, I mean, you, you can, if things are really far away in particular, you can shift your focus so that it includes a few more things. But you'll notice that if you really want to actually see the things that are out of the focus, your eyes are going to dart over there and you're going to be able to move that focal point to something else. So everything that's outside of that tiny little focal point technically falls into the category of our peripheral visual system. And our peripheral visual system does actually notice when things happen in our peripheral vision. We notice movement in particular. So if a head turns or if a body position turns, even if their body position turns, but their head is facing our way, then we're actually likely to pick up on the fact that we do see something out of the corner of our eye, as the saying goes, mm-hmm. where we sense that movement. And the system is actually more sensitive to slight movements than you might think. Or, and then we even maybe even realized that the tiniest little movements or changes are things that will, will grab our attention. And we don't see them exactly as they happen, but we notice something. It only functions when someone is present or somewhere within our field of vision. And that's, that's one of the most critical points of this is that it's within our general field of vision where our eyes are oriented toward. But this this is also something to, I guess, we'll tackle really quick, which is the idea of like when people see ghosts or they feel like they sense some other presence around them, it's always right in the corner of their eye. And that's essentially like you are primed to respond to anything to the point that even when you move your body, then that shifts what's in your peripheral vision, what shifts in your peripheral vision feels like movement because it moved because you moved and therefore you sense it as an agent moving if that makes sense yeah there's not a lot of people that report that they directly saw a ghost yeah and i saw something not too long ago that was like if i saw a ghost i would dedicate my entire life studying that phenomenon and figuring out what happened like if i actually saw a ghost you better believe that i'm never dropping that right i don't know it's always been really interesting so i guess dan Aykroyd though is is like really into that (laughs) and kate mckinnon and now like a lot of people so (laughs) no but i think like dan Aykroyd legitimately like his family owned like an occultist bookstore and like that's like part of his family history like his grandfather was like a ghost hunter i thought you were kidding (laughs) (laughs) no i mean kate mckinnon is like maybe i don't know enough about her but i know dan Aykroyd. (laughs) apart from being on the spectrum and having his own Skull vodka. Oh, okay. Super into ghosts. I was gonna say, why did you list all the other Ghostbusters? But <laughs> so anyway, going back to your point about when you move and your your peripheral vision changes, one thing you have to note too is that when we talk about identifying things like gaze or identifying things like movement, there's a very narrow margin in which we observe it. There are actually a pair of studies that indicate that we can only accurately detect whether or not someone is staring at us within four degrees of our central fixation point. So that goes back to the idea of like when I'm staring at a certain space and I couldn't tell you what exactly four degrees looks like, but when I'm looking at a central focal point, there's not very much that I see outside of that. And so gaze is something that I don't notice outside of a very specific range of vision. Suffice it to say, four degrees is very small. Right. Let's just say, we'll leave it at that. It's not very much range at which you'd be detecting that. And what we sense there could be as brief as one person turning, which is the change in the environment that makes another person turn. And 
insignificantly, it's, I mean, it's an insignificant movement, but your gaze match for just a moment without any real information passing between you. And then essentially what happens is you assume that that person was watching you and just staring at you for a period of time because you happen to notice movement. You glance over your eyes, catch one another for just a moment because you both moved at the same time. So you move, they moved, you glance over because you noticed movement, you lock eyes for just a moment, no real meaningful information passes, and you both have the sense that the other was watching the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is also kind of confusing. Sorry. Not from what you said, but just from the oh. experience. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, like, we could set up a role-playing thing right now, I guess, but <laughs> we don't need to. And it's an audio medium. I think we're okay. That's a really good point. You know, people wouldn't wouldn't see where my eyes were looking at all. <laughs> all you'd hear is the ruffle of clothing as we shifted positions, so not helpful. It's better than, like, food podcasts where, like, all you hear is chewing. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. Nom, nom. <laughs> oh, no thanks. No thanks. So... All this is going to the point that you might be wrong about somebody looking at you, but that's okay. Okay, so think about this. If historically the idea was to detect a potential threat, you'd probably want a lot more false positives than not, right? So you want to see that there's a possible threat, take a look at it, confirm that it's not a threat, and then move on. That's a better way of living than not being able to see a threat, and then all of a sudden it's a false negative, and now you are threatened. And a psychology professor from University of Sydney's Vision Center said, quote, a direct gaze can signal dominance or a threat. And if you perceive something as a threat, you would not want to miss it. So simply assuming another person is looking at you may be the safest strategy, end quote. And that goes exactly to what you were just saying, that it does make a lot of sense to say that, like, that's just something that we would do is to assume that there is some kind of threat because it's safer to assume that there is threat and take action because if you are wrong nothing happens but if you're right then you potentially avoid danger right exactly so maybe it's safest to assume that someone is behind you if that doesn't drive you out of your mind as somebody with pretty intense anxiety that is not a good strategy for me yeah i wouldn't generally recommend it i mean however i also don't worry too much because i am generally simply by my size not an approachable target (laughs) you know few people know but shane is like eight feet tall i'm eight feet tall it's it's painful (laughs) like in big fish when he's having the growing pains and he's having to be in the machine like that was my entire middle school career was i was in those machines (laughs) massaging my joints and now i'm eight feet tall so you know when we kind of talk about this idea like you know you can assume that somebody's behind you not a great way to go about that and somebody staring at you could very well indicate some sort of danger But on the bright side, it may signal intimacy. So it could be one or the other. Hopefully, one that's a shared intimacy and not something of a distant stranger who has an affection for you that you don't know about. Yeah, one-sided intimacy is still a threat, I think. Yeah, yeah, still very (laughs) uncomfortable at its core. Right. All right, so let's get back to this conversation about horror movies. We're never really done with them after all, and they're great, so (laughs) there's that. So so what about horror movies? Did the person in the horror movie know that something was coming? If you are in that position where the swamp monster thing or alien or whatever is chasing after you, can you tell just by the fact that it's looking at you that they're coming? Results are in. Survey says. Debunked. <laughs> yes. We had to use debunked because myth busted was copyrighted. Yeah. Oh, well, fewer syllables anyway. (laughs) So several studies have tested to see if the act of staring at someone from behind does actually elicit some noticeable physiological change in them so that we could detect, is your body responding to someone looking at you? And again, conclusion, don't flatter yourself with the idea that an onlooker is burning holes in the back of your head or burning holes through your body. 
it is not the case. Again, you really have that four degrees of range outside of your central focus point that you'd be able to detect movement. And outside of that, and definitely not behind you, you can't tell. Yeah, don't be Regina George. She says, why are you so obsessed with me? Like, don't be that person. <laughs> like, most likely you don't have somebody staring holes into your back, or like, you definitely can't sense it. But when we talk about this, it doesn't seem to be true, yet sensing a presence behind you or near you is more likely to be related to subtle changes in the environment or the environmental state. So maybe a shadow, a quick reflection, a scent, a soft sound. What you might be sensing is something else, not necessarily something that's in your visual range, but some other sense is active in that moment. Yeah, that's a really good point that we've been talking about. Can you feel someone looking at you? But there are a lot of other signals that give away the fact that there's something behind you. So, I mean, if you think about it, anything entering your environment will modify that environment in some way, even if it's in a really slight way. So if they're really hot or really cold, that could change the environment. If they had to come through an opening, that might move the air in the environment so that you feel a slight shift in the way that the air is settling around you. Or obviously things a little less subtle, like if they were to cock a gun, like that would that would be pretty obvious. If all of a sudden the light changed and something comes behind you, or if it fades, dims, if you see shadows, if it flickers, if there's the fake swooshing sound that knives make in horror movies when they pull out a knife through thin air and you hear, shing! And I'm like, what were you, like, do you have a leather belt that you were like rubbing it against to make that sound? All you did was lift it from point A to point B. But those things obviously would be a way of signaling that something is going on behind you that would not be visual. But we can misinterpret the fact that we sensed something behind us as that we felt it watching us when it was actually something else we weren't really paying attention to, but nevertheless cued us into the fact that something was behind us. Right. So essentially your own imagination that spawns from sensing any change in the environment may lead to other sensitivities across the body, but they're all still related to the initial stimuli that was caused by something entering the environment. So there was some change. It sparked some kind of thought. And then your head just kind of rolls with that, right? Like your head just kind of like your imagination runs wild, essentially. Like you hear something, you're like, oh, it could be this, 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 and this. And then you start having sensitivities as a result of your imagination. Right. And okay. What if we are wrong about all of this? So many times you don't have the luxury of sclera to help you determine whether or not someone's gaze was shifted toward you if you were to look at them. And as you move your head, you may have just caught the tail end of someone's gaze that was just maybe temporarily fixated on you, or maybe they weren't even really looking at you at all, but their gaze was moving past you and you happen to look over as they look as their gaze was in your general direction, even though they weren't directly looking at you. Right? Right. But so you think about if we don't have cues like sclera, if someone was wearing sunglasses and we have a tendency to just jump to conclusions that many things are directed toward us. So I guess for now, you can just sort of assume that if they're looking at you, as you said, why are you so obsessed with me? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's It might just be your ego. Yeah. And that's the thing is like. You know, you might have that sense, and I think a lot of times what happens is because we are the center of our own universe, a lot of times we assume that everything does relate back to us in some way, and for the most part, that's not even close to the case. Often, yeah. Now, I mean, people might be watching, and in that case, it is useful to know and to and to feel like you're being watched and to react to it, so especially if you feel like you're being stalked. I mean, I think considerations of this are around, like, if you are at your home and there's, like, a face in your window and you look over and they look away like they weren't looking at you the whole time, like, well, 
the problem there is that face shouldn't be in your window at all. Doesn't matter what. <laughs> so, could, you, could you imagine that? Nothing here but us trees. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I feel like there's some common sense that goes with we're not trying to say that like just because someone's not looking directly at you doesn't mean that they weren't watching you. But you know, don't necessarily jump to conclusions about it. I guess. Right. Just try to move on. I mean, note it. But maybe move on. And if you are listening to us and you're one of those people who likes to watch people who don't know that they're being watched, stop and <laughs> maybe go get help. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, don't do that. Yeah. Or if you feel like they're going to say yes to letting you watch them creepily, then like go obtain consent. But otherwise, no more. Yeah. No mo. Enough. All right. So <laughs> we want to always kind of take that then kind of like tie it back to like a, you know, the behavioral approach that we tend to lean into a little bit. And so the last section here that we want to kind of dig into is this idea of a behavior analytic perspective or just a behavioral perspective on this idea of the senses and things that we've been talking about. We can view anything in the world through this lens. It is the clearest lens that we have. It's wonderful. And we love it. So to start, when we say to sense something, to send something and to go the route of a sequence of things happening mentally goes outside of our traditional level of analysis. So we don't typically look at this, this idea of sensing as part of our general behavior analytic scope. At least not in the sense of like you're sensing a piece of stimuli for which you do not have the biological equipment to sense. Right. Or you're sensing like a feeling or an intention that's just sort of drifting around the ether around you like that's the kind of sensing we obviously accept and acknowledge that we have eyes and ears and a mouth and like skin that we can sense things with that's we're not saying that that doesn't exist that would be silly right right right. yeah how dare you assume that we would say that (laughs) (laughs) but there's so much to be said about reacting in any way to stimulus too so a stimulus in the environment any sort of change in the environment and all those cues do prompt behavioral changes and those behavioral changes do include our overt like operant behavior like our learned behavior but also physiological responses like things that happen in our body increased heart rates sweating and all that stuff so all those things that happen in the environment do prompt us as organisms to engage in certain behaviors either based on our learning history or we're born with those things so as we stated earlier the entry of anyone into your environment or looking your way is comprised of a variety of of bits of information, a variety of cues that can be directed toward all the senses. So we are biological organisms that are responding to those events in our environment. And as we, as that information hits us, so as we contact it, then we have some kind of behavioral reaction or response, be it a feeling that we have or a thought that we have or a actual physiological change that we have where we sort of maybe have an increased heart rate or we have the the hairs in the back of our neck stand up. This all fits easily within the general analysis of the interaction of our biological organism with its stimulating environment and the consequences for doing so, which is to say, what is the outcome for reacting in that particular way? And in specifically a history of consequences from similar situations would definitely impact how you respond to that same condition when you're confronted with it the next time or in maybe your current circumstance, which is to say, if in the past you have had those same cues presented to you and you turn to react to them in an elevated way and it was never anything, then your elevated reaction is most likely going to diminish over time. Versus if you have had those cues presented to you, the feeling of someone looking at you or those sounds or whatnot, and you react to them in a way that allowed you to escape from some kind of threat or to identify something that was there, then that reaction is going to then therefore be elevated. And so if there's a threatening sound that was just wind slamming a door without 
actually seen some crazy person in a hockey mask from an escaped insane asylum <laughs> or wearing a uh, William Shatner mask. Maybe because I think that was from the actual insane asylum. <laughs> if I'm getting my <laughs> horror movie anthologies right. Nope. That's the, the yeah. One, the hockey mask is from the lake. The Shatner mask is from the insane asylum. Okay. Shatner is what? Okay. I, I had that right. Okay. So it makes you less likely to react in a threatening way next time because it's just the door slamming and you know that the, that happens when there's wind. And so your reaction changes. I was not prepared to talk about Halloween today. So <laughs> surprise bonus stuff, bonus content folks. So as we kind of discussed our reactions to anything of this sort, okay, those things like the door slamming or any sort of movement in our environment, some kind of change in our environment, be it somebody staring at us or the indication of somebody else in the room. It's a combination of the effects of human evolution, as well as operant learning or our learning histories, our experiences across our lifetime. So all of those things together contribute to the thought, the feeling, and the behavior that you engage in as a result of these changes. And there are definitely the moment-to-moment instances when you do look at someone and they were looking at you, and then that reinforces any attempt that you have that when you notice something looking at you, that you're likely to, to glance at it because you've, you now have the outcome of I was right as being a a rewarding thing potentially that can happen because being right is definitely something that feels good and we definitely seek it out. Mm-hmm. It's a complex thing to feel like you're right, but it is nevertheless something that we experience pretty regularly. At least I do. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He does. Just, he does. Just <laughs> <laughs> So it is something that we want to experience. I should say that's pretty valuable to most people. I think so. Yeah. Shall we talk about being sad? Yeah. Let's talk about being sad a little bit. And by sad, we mean, of course, social anxiety disorder. Yeah. So some folks do have this, you know, we talk about social anxiety disorder. We're talking about this experience where the perception of eye contact or staring can be a signal of some kind of oncoming or undesired social contact. So essentially it's not necessarily a threat to somebody's livelihood, but it is a threat to somebody's comfort levels and stuff like that, where that is kind of an uncomfortable thing. Like if I saw my ex at a grocery store and I made eye contact, I would definitely have some anxiety about having an interaction with them. That's not social anxiety disorder. That's just a very particular instance. But some people have a really tough time with experiencing social contact. And so eye contact becomes a threat that results in what we call avoidant behavior. So I see this eye contact from somebody that signals a potential social interaction. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. Crawl under the nearest table. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm going to hide. I'm going to like, I think about this when I'm at the grocery store. Like I usually put my headphones in, put my earbuds in and I listen to the podcast. While I'm shopping and I try not to make any social contact when I'm out if I can. But ultimately what happens, this is kind of a negative reinforcement. It's like relief, right? Like when I see this, I can avoid it. I get some kind of relief from having that interaction. And it tends to, for some people who have this type of thing, the more that I contact relief, the worse that that gets. Right. And so we have to be mindful of that. That's one of like the bad effects of some types of reinforcement. So. Yeah, I also don't want to really give the impression I was trying to make fun of people who have social anxiety disorder by making jokes. I was just trying to make jokes to be funny to lighten the mood (laughs) yeah yeah we were just talking about serial killers so it's a little lighter we we gotta keep it we gotta keep it light so the serial killers don't win that's it (laughs) we 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 don't need the mike myers of the world (laughs) wayne's world or otherwise winning i feel like that's mostly what you need to know about feeling the eyes in the back of your head (laughs) and that sort of thing yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, when we kind of talk about this, the the idea is that the sensation or the phenomenon that you might experience is not a result of you visually seeing somebody behind you, but it's a combination of things that we may not be able to so finely discriminate 
in those environmental changes. We might not be able to see those things or recognize that there are changes in the environment that are influencing our behavior when those things happen. The biggest take home point for me on this is like you cannot sense someone watching you if they're not within your peripheral vision, full stop. Right. Or direct vision. Like if you're someone staring right at you and you're staring right back, then you can obviously sense that. But like the the whole idea that if someone's like back into the right of you and they're looking at you, you can't actually sense that. Like you just can't. We can't. We don't have there's nothing in our vision that would allow this to be the case. What we can sense, as you mentioned, those other things that happen. And another thing that I think is a big take home point here is the reason that we get the sense that we do know when that's happening is because when someone is legitimately staring at us. And we can't tell that they're staring at us and we never notice that they're staring at us. That is a 100% missed opportunity to learn that that happened. Right. So you would never know if like a thousand times a day someone was watching you, but you never actually noticed them. How would you know if you were if you were able to detect someone looking at you? Right. And alternatively, if someone was actually looking at you and you just happened to catch their glance as they did, then that really reinforces that idea that you can tell when someone's being watched because the time that you checked. And probably for some other reason, you happen to catch that that was the case. And the third major thing here that I'm going to say, <laughs> and I hope I'm not taking these all away from you. No, you're good. Is that we will very coincidentally catch someone's gaze. The whole thing I mentioned of like, if you move and that has someone else notice your movement and you notice their movement. And so you guys glance over at each other and happen to lock eyes for just a moment, then you get the sense that they were looking at you. And again, that reinforces that idea that you can tell that they were looking at you, even though they weren't. And so there might be these instances where you do look and you do find that someone is looking at you, but they weren't actually looking at you. And like there, it's possible you also catch someone just looking at you. That could definitely happen. Right. Right. Um, but just to say that we can't actually sense someone looking at us when, if they're not in our peripheral vision, full stop. Yeah. That's the main point here. And we don't have a second set of eyes in the back of our head. So if you've grown up with that, you know, that parent that's telling you that don't believe them. Yeah. They, they don't know what you're doing. You can they get away with know. anything. You can. You can. So get yeah, so so don't worry. They're not staring at you. They're not staring you when they're not staring at you. We give such good advice. Yeah, we're really great role models. <laughs> and then I think the one other thing too is that just going back to this idea of the sclera, which is to say that when you can see the whites of someone's eyes shift and you sense that movement and that is in your peripheral vision, that is something you absolutely can sense and can give you information about whether or not that shift is toward or away from you. Yeah. That's perfect. Cool. Do you have any other take-home points to end on? No, I think we covered it. Okay. Then I have some things I would like to recommend to our listening audience. Hey, me too. Recommendations. I'm going to recommend, at the time that we're recording this, we are, and even not that far out from when it's going to be released, we are still very much in the momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement and protests that are going on. And this just had me really feeling close to the band Rage Against the Machine. Mm. And so I'm going to recommend this. And this is something where this type of music is maybe not super accessible to all people. But even if you feel like you wouldn't like some rock music, I would recommend giving it a shot. Like just, you know, listen, there's a, there's a few really great songs, like look up whatever is the most popular. Like that's probably fine. Cause they're all of their songs are amazing. All their albums are amazing. And they just get you really 
pumped up and feeling empowered. So Rage Against the Machine is my recommendation. I remember buying Battle of Los Angeles when I was a kid because I just love that. That was the first Rage Against the Machine record I owned, but just their whole catalog is great. Yeah. Enjoy it. All right. My recommendation this week is also a band, but not as serious, you know, given that I think all of us need sometimes to have like a little space where it's not all intensity all the time. And so the record that I'm recommending is a band called The Damned out of England, and they're an older punk band. They've been around since the mid to late 70s. And this record, the record that I recommend is called Machine Gun Etiquette. Now, this has one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite punk songs ever written on it. It's called Smash It Up Parts 1 and 2. And it was actually covered, if you remember, did you ever see Batman Forever with Val Kilmer? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so there's a scene where Robin goes to beat up a bunch of neon-painted clowns, like a clown gang. Like you do. Like one does. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in the background, you hear the offspring playing this song, and it's got this melody that's like, ooh, smash it up, smash it up, smash it up. And it's like this really cool melody. Anyway, it's a damned song that they covered from this record front to back. It's just a lot of fun. It's a really classic punk rock record, and I can't recommend it enough. I've been spinning it nonstop since I had recently listened to uh, like a like a biography of this band. So the damned machine gun etiquette. And for those of our audience who are maybe younger, spinning it refers to the fact that music used to come <laughs> on circular <laughs> objects like records or discs. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. There's a thing called vinyl at one point in time. You don't spin anything on Spotify. No. You can maybe spin your phone around, I suppose, but it wouldn't really change very much or help in any way. So Yeah, it would just oscillate the sound that's coming out of your speaker on your phone, I guess. Yeah, which would be cool. So definitely give it a whirl. But okay, <laughs> I, I think that's all we have. Do you have anything else on punk or on <laughs> eyes in the back of your head, Shane? Nope, not today. Not today. Okay, well, we probably have a lot to say about punk, but we're going to go ahead and leave it there. Thank you for recording with me today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have, if you want to tell us about your favorite punk bands, we are so happy to hear that. You have no idea. No idea. Please. We spent about an hour talking about this before we showed up for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we were we were very late to recording because we just couldn't stop talking about it. So please send us any punk recommendations that you have. Also, if you have anything that you would like to share about feeling eyes in the back of your head, if you firmly disagree with us, or if you have done some cool experiments or if you agree with us or if you want to tell us about something completely unrelated to that that's perfectly great we like to hear it all reach out to us on social media or you can reach us at our email info at wwd wwd podcast thank you to alan kinsella for his wonderful research on this episode and thank you justin for his amazing audio engineering and producing that he does on all of our episodes mm-hmm. so thank you so much for listening this is abraham and this is shane we are out see ya You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. 
Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brasier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.